Also, you have plenty of opportunities to actually practice concentration meditation, see what it's like, ask questions, and really experience it for yourselves and see if this is something that you um, are interested in doing more of, either as a daily practice or on retreat. Uh, and if not, it's really helpful to understand all of the different um, aspects of the, of the Buddhist um, path. Uh, and so at a minimum, hopefully today, we'll help you flesh that out. Should we say a little bit about ourselves? Indeed. So I'm Tina Rasmussen, and um, I actually, it's, it's such a, a treat to be teaching at Spirit Rock because I've been a yogi at Spirit Rock for many, many years. I've done lots and lots of retreats here and day-longs, and so it's a, it's a real joy for us to now be teaching here. In terms of practice history, sometimes it's useful to know where, where a teacher's practice has been. So we'll just give you a little bit of our own practice history. I started meditating at the age of 13, so I had really, really good fortune that that happened. And um, then in my 20s, really got a lot more interested in the spiritual path and started, um, explored a lot of different traditions. So our, our backgrounds are a little bit more eclectic. Um, but eventually really settled on doing a lot of Vipassana retreats. And um, after my first retreat, just started doing month-longs, and then I did numerous month-longs, and uh, got interested in Tibetan Buddhism, studied with Sokni Rinpoche, who teaches here periodically. And then uh, about eight years ago, I really was feeling the burn for the practice and decided to do a year-long solo retreat. So for that year, I was practicing in silence for uh, for a year, actually a little longer than a year, you know, eight to eight to twelve hours a day, with just you know a few times within that year where I would come out and pay bills and and such. Um, and then after that, because of some of the experiences that happened on that year-long solo retreat. Um, Guy Armstrong, who has been a teacher of mine here, suggested that I seek out Pawak Sayadaw uh, and hear what he had to say in terms of, of some of the experiences that I had. So the, the Pawak Sayadaw taught a two-month retreat in 2005. 2005. Uh, we actually met because of that retreat and then ended up getting married. Um, and did the two-month retreat, and then after that, and a lot of, of um, things happened on that retreat that then led us to write our book, and he authorized us to start teaching about four or five years ago. Um, and then we started teaching and leading retreats, so now we lead retreats um, several times a year, and we actually have our first month-long retreat coming up in 2013. So it's been a real, um, it's been a surprising development in our lives because we were just normal householders and five years ago we started, we became Dharma teachers. So it's been a, quite, a, quite an interesting journey. And I, I started uh, at the other end of the world in the Zen tradition, <clears throat> spent about 20, 25 years there and became very curious um, around that time about what the Buddha actually practiced. Uh, <coughs> And so I began looking through the suttas and other references and seeing these meditations, particularly the concentration meditation or the jhana practice referenced quite a lot. And um, uh, in that interim also, 
did some Tibetan Buddhist retreats with some teachers and some other um, of the Western non-dual teachers and then ended up, as Tina said, we met slightly before the retreat we did with the Saidao and got married and she, she even ordained during the Oh, I retreat. forgot to mention that <clears throat> I ordained as a Buddhist nun on that retreat. So we, we married about six months and I told people, we already look alike. So <laughs> <laughs> Except that I was wearing a dress, so. <laughs> I, I didn't quite join you with that, no. Uh, but I, I've done a lot of retreats, really like retreat practice a lot. Um, really was quite enamored with this practice. It was one of these retreats where I knew it was happening. I knew the people organizing it. And I just started a brand new job and they said, oh, we're gonna send you an invitation to sign up for the retreat. And I said, don't bother, I started a new job. How can I possibly go for two months? I got the email from them and I watched myself hit reply and say, I'm coming for two months and then send it. And I literally said, who did that? <laughs> I can't go, so who's, who's signing up? And lo and behold, six months later when the retreat happened, my life situation had changed dramatically. Not only, not only was I married, but my, my work situation had shifted such that I could do the retreat. So it was kind of an interesting uh, uh, cosmic event, I guess. Yeah. And uh, as Tina said, then we uh, wrote the book and began teaching. And so we, oh, we, we should probably, well, well you've it's a big probably stack out there it, too. <laughs> but yeah, we, we first, we self-published it and then Shambhala picked up the book um, five years ago, something like Whatever that. Whatever it was. <clears throat> Anyway, we, we, we teach most of the long retreats we do at, at Cloud Mountain up in Washington. We do a two-week retreat every year. Anyway, it's very exciting to be here. I really love this venue and the practitioners in the Spirit Rock community. And we also live in Marin, so. So the commute is nice. good. Yeah. <laughs> and we'd also like to introduce our first teacher in training, Brian Gavin who will be doing part of the, uh, the talk in the afternoon. I don't know if you want to say anything you about yourself, Brian. Is this level okay? A little higher, maybe. The, I Just think they'll do it over is here. It, is this better? No. Is, is he on? Here. We can, we can use the handheld. I'm in okay. training. <laughs> this, is, this is part of the training. Um, I'm Brian Gavin. I am a teacher in training with Tina and Stephen. And uh, in contrast to them, my, my uh, head, history of meditation is relatively short. It's un under five years. I've been doing concentration meditation with Tina and Stephen, and I'll speak more about it this afternoon and my personal experience with it, uh, with it this afternoon. Um, but I, uh, I, I chanced upon a, uh, a retreat they did a couple of years ago, and lo and behold, here I am pointing in the wrong direction in a room like this. I, I'm not quite sure how I got here, but I'll, I'll try and explain it later. Thank you. Yeah, so Brian, we've, we've authorized him to do Dharma talks, and he'll start doing day-longs after having um, participated in a couple like this, and really focusing on that territory from first sit to first jhana. So, uh, which he has experienced himself. So, uh, we, we'd like to be able to have the word get out there more, and Brian travels extensively and loves to do so. And we don't. And we don't. <laughs> and so he's going all over the country doing all these Dharma talks, which is really a wonderful way to, to have the practice um, get to more people who are interested in it. He's also going to Canada as well. And Canada, yeah. yeah. So. Very impressive. So, a little bit about um, today. First, our style, we know that it's different than what you're probably used to here. 
we we give talks together so it's not like one of us will talk solely for 10 minutes and then the other one will well each of us has sort of things we're doing but we will be jumping in so hopefully you won't be offended if it looks like we're interrupting each other we we try not to actually interrupt each other but we have more of a fluid style so just know that that's we like to teach that way it's fun for us and um, Sometimes we even have little conversations up here we amongst have, ourselves. Yes. So, so our <laughs> style's a little bit that. different. Yeah. Um, so a little bit about the agenda for today. We're really going to be trying to give you a, a, a sense, an overview sense of the practice. What is it? What's beneficial about it? Why would somebody want to do it? What are some of the things that can happen when we're doing it? Um, and also to have a number of sittings where you can actually experience the practice and ask questions. So we're actually going to have, I think, four sitting periods in mm -hmm. total. And uh, over lunch, the way that walking is done in this practice is different. So you'll have a chance to try, if you want to, doing the walking as it's done in this practice over lunch. We'll have um, breaks in the morning and the afternoon. So hopefully you'll have a chance to get up and stretch as well. Do you want to mention now about the walking or later? No, I think later okay. when the time comes. Um, logistics. So if you have cell phones with you, if you could make sure that they're off, that would be great. We made sure ours were off, so that was that's good. Um, there's a table with flyers about our schedule on the back. There's only about 30 flyers, so if you don't need one, you might leave it. But if you do need one, please take one. Uh, the restrooms are just out that door to the to the right. I don't know if there are additional restrooms. Um, hopefully you've brought lunch. If not, we, we might have some suggestions for that. And also there's, there's a large stack of books over there, but last time we did a day long here, they ran out of books really early. So we have brought some more books. We'd rather that you buy the books from Spirit Rock, but if they run out, just tell us and we'll put our copies up out there. Um, any other logistics for today? I don't think so. Okay. So we thought that um, maybe we'll, we'll do see who's in the room and then yeah. have them do their intentions. So just to get a sense of your practice as a group so we know sort of who's here and, and also your experience with concentration meditation. Just shows of hands. How many people here are, are mainly Vipassana practitioners? Okay. How many of you would consider yourselves experienced? Okay. How many people uh, feel that you have some experience with concentration meditation? Okay. That's more than we usually yeah. have. That's kind of excellent. That's great. Um, how about Zen? Zen practitioners? Okay. Tibetan Buddhist? Okay. Other? People always ask us, what, what does that mean, other? Um, but we, this, this concentration meditation is practiced within Christianity and is a major feature of, well. of the yogic traditions, of the Hindu practices. So we, sometimes we get people from those traditions coming to uh, our events we as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Um, so just to build a little bit of sangha and also have you have your own sort of clarity and intention about today, just think about what is your intention for being here today? And take a minute to do that. 
And then turn to one person that's next to you or near you and just introduce yourself and share what your intention is. I ideally, someone you didn't come with. Yeah, ideally, <coughs> someone you don't know. I'm sorry that was so hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> Those could go on for 10 minutes, which is great, which is great. Okay, so, so why this practice? What's compelling about it? Why would anyone even be interested in doing it? And as you can see from our backgrounds, we do a lot of other, we've done a lot of other practices and we still continue to do a lot of other practices. So we're not coming here saying we're trying to convince you to abandon every other practice you're doing and do this. We really, uh, that's not really where we're coming from. We're more um, wanting to help people reconnect to a practice that in many ways has almost went into obscurity. It's really only been in the last 20 years or, or so that this practice has been um, revitalized within Buddhism and also brought in a way that lay people could access it. I think there were times when maybe it was something that was still alive in the back, the back rooms of monastic settings, but... Um, I think that the back rooms back of Back rooms of, yeah. But, um, but we really have, the more we've experienced the practice and also the more we've learned about the practice, the more we really feel that it is worthy of our attention. And um, so as we've learned more why, what's, more, what's compelling about it, what's been compelling to us. And one of the things we come back to over and over again is the Buddha himself. If you look at his life, if you read the suttas, if you read all the suttas, not just the ones we normally look to, but if you go more broadly, the Buddha talks about concentration practice and the jhanas in particular over and over and over again at least 60% of the suttas, he's talking about this practice. So what was so compelling to him that over all the decades of his own teaching that he just kept talking about this practice over and over and over again? That's one thing that we find pretty compelling. Another is looking at his own practice. Even after, so how does this practice relate to the Buddha? Well, when he left the um, Palace. The palace, I always say the temple, because I always, <laughs> you know, picture him in the temple. But the palace, when he left palace life and went out on his own quest to understand the, the mysteries of, of existence, he um, went and found the best teachers he could of the day. 
you know, that's what he did. He tried to find somebody who he thought knew something that he could learn from. And the best teachers of the day were practicing this practice. They were doing this practice. They were yogis. There was no Buddhism. There was no Hinduism. There was just yogic practitioners in the Himalayas and elsewhere, um, which there had been for decades, if not centuries. millennia. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, centuries, and he found the two that were considered to be the most leading teachers, and he went and studied with them, and he learned from one teacher, he learned the first through seventh jhana, and from another teacher, he learned the eighth jhana. And at that point, that was the end of the path as people knew it in that day. So he was considered to be fully enlightened, and he was authorized to start teaching, and he, he kind of felt like there was more to the path. So he went off on his own, and and um, this is really where for him, he really, his, the way he added to what he learned was through the Vipassana practice. So that's really part of why we focus so much on that within Buddhism. And that is, you know, it was revolutionary for the day. But he didn't, even after full enlightenment, the Buddha kept doing this practice. So why would he have kept doing this practice if it wasn't relevant and important as a fully enlightened being? And at the moment of his death, on his deathbed, he was doing this practice. So there's got to be, I mean, we'll never know exactly why. I wish I could ask him. But there's something to that that to us is very compelling. Um, and also, the other thing was that when he, when he had his full enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, he at first, he didn't want to teach or do anything, and eventually he was convinced to do that. But the people he went to first, who did he think had, as he said, little dust in their eyes, who could actually take in what he had to offer, were the two teachers who taught him the jhanas. So those were the first people he went to because he thought that they could get it, and they did. They were the first people who became fully enlightened under the Buddhist teaching. So for us, there's, there's something in that that's really worthy of our consideration as, as Buddhist um, practitioners. And even before the Buddha, if you look at um, scriptures like the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which um, are out of the yogic tradition, you can see this practice refer referenced there. They use the word um, dhyana, D-H-Y-A-N-A, for any of you who've, who've read that. But in the, in the yoga tradition and in Hinduism, these practices were referenced even for millennia before. So to us, you know, we think that maybe these practices are even four or 5,000 years old. And for something to last that long in humanity, there's got to be something to it that's been worthy of it lasting that long. There aren't very many things that have endured well, over the amount of endured, time. Well, not just endured, but also still have immediate uh, importance, resonance, and and applicability to today's right. uh, practitioner and consciousness. Yeah, when we find, especially on retreats with people, that what it does, and we'll talk about purification of mind later, because that's really, to us, a very important part of understanding why, why is this practice even relevant. We see that people, um, there is something that happens that is different than Vipassana. I mean, Vipassana is doing a certain thing on the mind stream that's very important, but this is doing something different on the mind stream that also is very important. And it still is relevant to a modern um, being in our observation as we've been working with people as it was probably 5,000 years ago. 
So it's a, it's a great question, really. Um, how is this pertinent to us? Why should we care about this? And, and really, the, these days, we're all really busy. It's, it's a busy world. It's a, um, a world that's uneven, uh, lots, lots going on, and it's taking our attention. And one of, the, one of the benefits of the concentration meditation is it really allows us, and the, and the idea of it really is to allow a collecting, a unifying of the mind. And that really becomes something that's very useful practically, even as a daily practice, to just settle and have one object to the exclusion of everything else. The mind gets an opportunity to relax and just have that one meditative object. So it really can have some pretty, pretty great applications today. Uh, additionally, what we see with people is uh, the people that do take this practice up either on a daily basis and or retreat basis find their other meditations benefit. We hear regularly from people who are uh, various practitioners, insight practitioners, Zen practitioners, Tibetan practitioners particularly, who will learn this meditation, learn the concentration, and they see their other practice really deepening because you're able to really bring that collected, unified mind stream to that practice. So it really has great application. As Tina said, we're not presenting this as a standalone. This is a great practice to learn, and it should be part of your meditative toolkit, let's say. The, the real benefit of this practice is that it's a purification of mind practice. And we'll talk about that more extensively later. But, but basically, it's because we're turning away from the normal stimulus and habit energy of the mind to the meditative object, we're cultivating, we're inviting a little bit of disinterest in those other mind activities. And that allows a certain settling and a relaxing. The, the translation of, of this practice often is translated uh, as concentration and as tranquility and serenity. So those are all components of this meditation. So really al allowing us to have that, that purification of mind beginning by just returning to the object each time we do. Purification is already happening. And through that, what, what happens is there's less of a, a personal attachment. There's less of a belief in our own mental patterning. So it allows what we call a little bit of a thinning of the me. We'll talk about that a little bit later also. So there's some great benefits to this practice, both, again, in the daily realm and also doing uh, intensive retreat practice. Yeah, so really the, to us, the four major benefits are the serenity. So as a daily practice, like when we do the practice as a daily practice, a lot of times we'll under, we, we really think it's good to take a whole block, like do something for a few months rather than every day doing something differently. But um, if we're feeling like we need to have more serenity in our lives, there's an especially chaotic period or something, it really, because we're just returning to that same object over and over, there's a stilling and there's a serenity that's possible in this practice that's a little different than a momentary concentration practice where the object may be changing. So it's the serenity, the, the concentration, both for just staying with something, which we can use in our daily lives, and as applied to other practices we may do. And then the purification of the mind and the thinning of the me, which is really those two reasons are really more about the deeper aspects of the path, and we'll talk about that uh, in a little bit.
And this we, really becomes a touchstone as well because we're yeah. using the breath. We can return to the breath fairly easily and it does allow a certain settling almost immediately uh, as we have a little bit of experience with the practice. We should probably say, for, since there are so many people who have done concentration practice before, that we teach the method that we learned from Pawak Sayadaw. There are a number of different presentations of concentration practice, and they're different. They are different from each other. And we, we, we don't offer like a survey course on that. Richard Shankman would be somebody who might be able to do that because we haven't done the other practices. You know, we're, we've done what we learned from Pawak Sayadaw, and that's really what we're presenting. So if it's some parts of it are different than what you've learned in other practices, that's why. So let's see how we're doing on time. Should we open it up for a few questions? Yeah, I think so. I have a practical question. Uh, is this recorded? Can we listen to it later on? Yes, this, this will be on Dharma Seed. Okay, thank you. Yeah. You mentioned a number of times that uh, the yana and the samatha, the co concentration is found in the suttas, and I was wondering if you could point out one or two suttas that, you know, particularly speak to the concentration and or the yana practices. Yeah, well, the, you're sort of more the sutta expert than I am, but the Maha Satipatthana Sutta is one where he goes through a lot of the path, um, but as opposed to, uh, yeah, that, that was his last sutta he gave before he died, right? I, 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 I don't know the timing of the sutta, but that, that, that is one of the... That would be one. Actually, in the Satipatthana Sutta itself, you can see references to concentration practice yeah, the, as well. In fact, the Mahas Satipatthana Sutta, we, we, do, we do quote in our book the instructions that we've we sort of uh, modernized a little bit, yeah. but, but, the, but the traditional instructions are all, are all there. There's plenty of suttas where the Buddha will reference John or concentration, then he gives a sort of formula uh, description, which is a snapshot, and there's many of those. What, one of the hard things about the suttas, and this is where a lot of the, um, the different takes on the practice, I would say, come from, is that in the suttas themselves, it's very ambiguous what you're actually supposed to do in the practice. And um, we th we are, we're not scholars or historians, so we should say that first off. Where we teach from is really our experiential base. Um, but if you look at, if so, if you look at the suttas, we think that probably in the day of the Buddha, anybody who was interested in spiritual practice would have known about concentration practice. It's like today if, if somebody was to say prayer, even if we're not in a tradition that does prayer, because it's such a part of the culture, we kind of have an idea what, that's, what that is. In the day of the Buddha, that was what this practice was. This was the main practice being done. So, so if you so, said jhana... He, there might not have been a need to, to detail it out. So that's where other, other texts like the Visuddhimagga are really a lot more detailed in terms of the actual what you do in the practice. But that would be a sutta to, to and, take and a look at. And those who don't know, the Visuddhimagga is one of the first Buddhist meditation manuals. So it was decided to actually have a book that had more of the nuts and bolts in it of meditation. So that's what that text is. Go ahead. Um, you folks are using jhana and concentration, I guess, interchangeably. 
And I, I thought the jaundice dates were actually the this dates that led up to enlightenment, and there were nine or ten of them. So is that is that the same thing? I'm getting a little confused by sure. the jhana. So the question is whether jhana and concentration, as we're using them, are interchangeable, or if they're referring to different different things. Is that right? Is right. that, and that then your question? Jhana states are something other than. And jhana states are perhaps different uh, other states than a concentrated right. state. Yeah. So, so the the word um, the word jhana really applies to a certain level of concentration. So, I'll talk in a little bit about the three levels of concentration, which is full absorption. So, there are different levels. So, you're right. The word concentration isn't synonymous with jhana. There's there are levels of concentration. Even in other practices like vipassana, we are cultivating concentration. So, um, some some of the teachers in the West really prefer to just call it concentration practice, um, which technically would be more accurate than calling it the jhana practice. Um, you can, a you jhana can think of jhana is, also as fruition, right. where, where there's benefit to doing the concentration practice for the purification of mind and other benefits. And what can happen, there can be a ripening such that the fruition of the absorption concentration does arise. And Tina will talk about con- the three con- types of concentration a little bit later today. Right. So one can do concentration practice without jhana being a part of that. Absolutely. Um, as a newcomer to the concentration practice, in your instructions earlier, you had us uh, focus on the breath as it's coming in between the mouth and the nostrils. But in Vipassana, I've been concentrating in other places. Is it important today to... Good, good question. Yeah. The question is that uh, her background in meditation is to do the breath, but to do it at other parts of the body, most commonly the chest or abdomen, and that we're requesting it be done between the nostrils and upper lip, and does it make a difference is the, the question. And the answer is yes, it does make a difference. It's, it, the, again, Tina will talk about concentration and the way it develops in the concentration practices. It really needs to be external to the body for it to develop in, to progress into the deeper concentration, um, uh, I guess, mind developments. Mind yeah. developments. Uh, yeah, so, so it, it is important to do it that way. And, and at first, it, a number of people find it a little bit tricky at first, but with, and, and for the Zen people, the question is always, well, and Tibetan people, do my eyes need to be shut? And the answer there is yes also. <laughs> Um, but with, with a little bit of experience, it gets more comfortable to do. Yeah, there is. It's not arbitrary why it's like that. There's there are reasons for it, and that really we we most of our retreats, probably at least eighty percent of the people who come are vipassana practitioners. So there's a little bit of a, a shifting point where um, at first for some people it's a little bit hard to switch over. But we found a hundred percent of the people who practiced with us even in daily practice, are able, if they're motivated to do this practice, to switch over. And then when you do Vipassana, then you switch back. So, I mean, the, the Buddha gave us 40 meditation objects. So the, the idea that there might be a number of different ways we might practice is very much a part of what he was teaching. It just takes a little getting used to. Good question over here. That was yeah. my question. Oh, okay. okay. In the back there? Good. I just missed we yeah, will. We're, we're going to each meditation a, period. We'll do it. So yeah. you're in luck. In the very back. 
Right. The mind wanting to create that sense. So what, what do we do with that? Okay, good question. The question is that if, if the breath isn't as noticeable, there's a tendency of the mind to, in effect, create breath or create connection with the breath there. Is that the question? Yes. And what to do about that? Um, yeah, well, the, the most common question we get, so we might as well just answer yeah. it now, is I can't feel the breath. Well, it's, there's variations. I can't feel it. I can't I can feel it. only the in-breath, only the out-breath, <laughs> one nostril or the other nostril, <laughs> only inside of the nose. What we do I do? Last time we did a day long here, there were like 120 people. And at the first break, we didn't cover this after before. The first break, yeah. We had about 50 people ask this question, so we thought we would just cover it. Um, yeah, the, and this is the, we asked the Sayadaw, and this is the most common question he's gotten in his 60 years of teaching as well. One of the things that happens with this practice, with any practice, but in particular with this, is as you do it more, your awareness becomes more subtle, and so it's easier to perceive uh, the breath over time doing it. It may be harder at the beginning. So one of the one of the suggestions is if you stay with it, it becomes easier to notice. Um, so, so part of what's happening is you are getting more concentrated simply by showing up and bringing your attention to that op, to that location. So you're, you're creating a greater coherence of mind and you're also inviting a greater sensitivity to where you can detect it if it's not there. And you'll notice the difference when you're detecting it, whether it's actually there or whether the mind is, you know, creating conditions, let's say, yeah. for the attention to be entertained or one one of the drawn. great things is that we know that we are always breathing. So the the object is always there. It's just uh, whether or not our awareness is subtle enough to notice it. And sometimes people get a stuffy nose or something. So it, it is possible to do it where you're doing it with mouth open but it's not optimal. So we, if anyone has that today, feel free well, to. People can also have you know, various medical reasons, but when Tina's right, we, on retreat we've seen people just do mouth breathing and they still can find a way for the breath to cross there gently, even not coming yeah. out of the mouth and into the mouth. But so. you're not imagining or visualizing the breath. Right. That's, I think, the, the main That's a great thing to, to uh, clarify there. Well, let's do one more. One more and then... We got Go ahead. Um, will you be discussing the fruits of um, purification and also the process of stream entry? The question is, will we be discussing the fruit of purification and will we be discussing stream entry? Yeah, we, we can, certainly. We'll be talking about... Well, the purification part we will be talking yeah. about most specifically. Mm -hmm. We can talk about how this relates to stream entry if, if that would be helpful. Sure. Yes, yeah, when we get to that point, if we forget, just remind us. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and take this gentleman. Go ahead. Yeah, um, sorry for my confusion, but in my practice in uh, reading Bornstein's books and others is I always concentrate on the inflow of air going through one nostril coming out of the nostril. And so that was the Vipassana practice. But you're also saying that's part of the concentration practice? Well, we don't, we don't do it to the specificity of only paying attention to one nostril or two. Or two. It's, it's just the breath being there. It's, it's a little more relaxed um, approach. Right. The yeah. difference, a lot, we get this question a lot. Well, in Vipassana, I'm focusing on the breath. How is this different? At the beginning of Vipassana, 
almost all the teachers I know of start with the breath. And like if you do a long retreat, you may even do the breath for days. So that's building the concentration. The part of the difference is that you may be doing the breath wherever it's predominant. So if it's predominant at the belly, then that's where you're noticing it. The difference with Vipassana is that then ultimately you go on to other objects and ultimately you have a choiceless awareness where whatever is predominant in your awareness is the object. So that's how at the beginning they kind of start out in the same place, but over time they, they go in different directions. Yeah. It's, it, it's just the mindfulness of breathing and, and the application, how it's done is different right. well, in we're, different Buddhist traditions. We're teaching Anapanasati just as in mindfulness, this, the word Anapanasati, which is in Pali means mindfulness of breathing. We're also being mindful of breathing here. It's just how the practice progresses and some of the details of it um, are, lead to what happens with concentration and some lead to what happens with, with Vipassana. Okay, so let's actually um, do period. some meditation. And, and um, just to encourage you to give it a try, you know, see what it's like uh, to do this if it's something new to you. And With this instruction, I'm, I'm going to also uh, uh, read the instruction for counting breaths, which can be used as a support. Um, and, and the way that works is one in-breath, one out-breath, and then the number. So inhale, right. exhale a light one, inhale, exhale, a light two. It's helping you stay focused on the periods between breaths because our mind is so incredibly adept at finding things to do in that very little period of time. Sometimes the counting helps. And the one caveat is the counting isn't the object. The counting is a help. So you don't want to make the counting the, the uh, sole focus. It's just helping you. And we only count one to eight and then eight back down to one. Because we found if we go to 10, because we're taught to count that way, uh, we go into automatic pilot more easily. So 1 to 8, 8 to 1. Right. The, the counting can be a helpful tool uh, as long as the number doesn't become the object. So it just helps us know whether we're actually on the object or whether we're wandering around. Seat yourself in an upright posture with your spine straight, your shoulder blades relaxed down your back toward the floor, and your hands comfortably on your legs or in your lap. With eyes closed, allow your attention to be lightly placed where you notice the movement of breath between the nostrils and upper lip, the Anapana spot. The object of this meditation is the breath. You are to know the breath as it passes the Anapana spot on each inhalation and exhalation. When the attention wanders from knowing the breath as it moves across the Anapana spot, gently return it without judgment or self-criticism. One method of concentrating awareness is to count breaths. The Saidao suggests counting from one to eight and back down from eight to one, with each progressive inhalation and exhalation as a unit. For example, a single in-breath and a single out-breath is one. Once concentration begins unifying, you can drop the counting if you like. We will sit for about 30 minutes and we will be doing reminders just to help you 
stay with that object.